You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Here's what Peter says. Beginning in verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. I want to pray for us and we'll dive in. Father, um, ask, Lord, as we open your word together, that you would come and speak through your word. Uh, Father, this morning I am reminded of how... uh, really unqualified I am to stand in this pulpit and to speak on your behalf. And so, God, I ask that you would come and, and cleanse me in these moments, that you would cleanse my heart, my spirit, um, that you would come and by the power of your spirit speak to us. Lord, that you would come and speak a word that is life-giving, a word that maybe even rebukes us in some places, uncovers wounds in other places, but a word that would also give healing and a call to repentance. I pray that you would give us a strength where we feel weak. Most of all, Father, I ask that you would reveal the power of the work of your son Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb and center our hope on uh, the promise of heaven. And I pray that you would do all of this and more trust you to do it. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So hey, I want to start us off with a a question this morning. Um, Should be on the screen for you to think about. And you might find the question a little bit funny um, right off the bat. Here's the question. What's the biggest trial you faced recently? Now you can go ahead and kind of give me a funny look because I know we just came through 2020. I realize the 2000s just turned 21 and the 2000s are able to drink now. And so if 2020 was bad, it's probably pretty easy to think that 2021, I don't know. Right? We don't know what's going to happen. But I know as we look back at the, the year, it's pretty easy to say, you know, last year was a trial in and of itself, and I get that. Um, but I really want us to think for a moment over the span of your life and just think about kind of the one big trial that you have faced. Maybe it's something that kind of keeps reoccurring, something that keeps nagging at you, something that keeps eating at you, Right? What is that big trial in your life? What, what's the hardest thing you've walked through in your life? There's, there's a variety of things, right, for all of us. There's a variety of trials and, and hardships in this life. We all experience certain things like um, ongoing struggle with different patterns of sin. Um, we, we experience things like uh, the brokenness of relationships. We experience the loss of loved ones to illnesses. Um, 
we experience things like, you know, the, the, just the day-to-day difficulty, the day-to-day struggle of, of, of like making ends meet in, in, a, in a broken world, right? So there's a lot of things that, that I think we face in terms of trials and difficulty that might come to mind for us. Now I want you to think about how the Bible speaks into that. Because that's kind of where we're going to head today, is how does the Bible speak into the trials and the difficulties that we face in this life. I think for some people it's, it's surprising um, when you come to the Bible and you begin reading it, you find out that the Bible really isn't a fairy tale kind of a book, right? Um, on, on the other side, it's easy to maybe view the Bible like it's just a, a complex collection of like random facts, wise sayings, and stories. And so it can be sometimes surprising or eye-opening when you find out that the Bible is more than that, too, right? And what the Bible really is, is is it's God's uh, love letter to mankind. I always love to think about it that way. It's a collection of love letters to mankind. Um, And really, I mean, from front to back, from beginning to end, this, this book, this Bible is written in the form of a story, mostly. There are lots of other genres of of writing in it as well, but overall there's this big overarching story. Um, it's got God at the center as the hero. Oftentimes we read it as though we're the heroes, which is wrong, because we're not the heroes. God himself is the hero of the Bible. Satan is the enemy, right? Um, mankind, what are we in, in the storyline? We are, we're deserters, aren't we? Like we left the Kansas City Chiefs and started playing for the other team, the Bills. That's who's playing today. Um, come on, is anybody else like the Kansas City Chiefs here? No. Holy cow. I feel, so, I feel so alone, vulnerable in front of you. <laughs> um, in the story, though, we humans, um, we really are the ones who deserted God's team, and we went to play for the opposing team, and so we are now in need of rescue. That's the way the narrative of the Bible um, goes. And the thing about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't seek to glamorize the story at all, right? It doesn't gloss anything over as you read through it. Of the entire book, all of the Bible is filled with all of these very raw, very uncensored versions of people who basically face trial after trial after trial, after hardship, after hardship in, in, in this broken world. It's really the story of the Bible. And then God continuously steps in and rescues, redeems, ransoms, restores. When you think about the grand narrative of the Bible for a minute, when you, when you, when you think about the very first trial, the very first difficult thing that happens in the Bible, early on in the book of Genesis, right? You've got Adam and Eve in the story. And they fail epically, right? Fail the trial. The standoff with the serpent, who we know is Satan in the form of a a snake. That's why I hate snakes, I think. That and snakes are creepy. Personally, I personally think that. Um, they, They fail in that story. And what does God do? God steps in and and rescues them from their shame and their guilt, right? Because they're hiding from it. I mean, from the get-go, the gospel is on display, right? Creation, fall into sin, God redeems, points them towards the hope of the future, 
that he's going to do. God's the center of the story. So that's from the very get-go. The story opens that way. Think about the end of the Bible. You go to the end of the Bible and you think about the, the, the book of Revelation, which a lot of us probably think if you could just turn that thing into a movie, that'd be a pretty rad movie, wouldn't it? Like, especially if it had great special effects um, and done on a good budget, not the low-end budget that oftentimes our, our Christian movies are made out of. <laughs> you look at the book of Revelation, though, it, it, you see the same story there. There's a trial, there's difficulty, there's, there's hardship in that book as you see God's people facing all of these uh, indescribable tribulations, right, and trials, difficulty. As the story of God himself basically concludes with the complete restoration of, of all things, right? The new heavens and the new earth. That's what happens. Now you think about the stories in between those two poles, right? You got Genesis, got Revelation, got the beginning, got the end. Think of all the stories in between those two stories of hardship, trials, difficulty. There's, there's untold amounts of stories all the way through the Bible filled with pain suffering, brokenness that sin brings at the center. So you, might, you might be familiar with the story of Joseph, coat of many colors, right? Brothers sell him off to slavery, and it's just like one trial after the next for him, one test after the next for him. You might be reminded of the story of Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den, Right? Kind of a test there with whether he's going to stop praying or keep praying. And then he gets tossed in the lion's den for his obedience to God. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same kind of story, right? Kind of walk through difficulty in the trial of going to bow down to this statue. Are you not? They choose not to. God steps in miraculously, rescues them. As you work your way all through the Bible, you see this reoccurring theme. Trials, difficulty, hardship, suffering, right? And you look at the nation of Israel as a whole throughout the Bible. You, you look at the prophets and all that they went through as they tried to speak for God. You look at the, the disciples as they walked with Jesus. Then after Jesus ascended into heaven and left them here. I mean, every one of them died horrifically for their faith, Right? So you look at the early church, which is kind of where we're at now. We're reading a letter that was written to the early church as it was scattered due to persecution, suffering, trials, and hardship. So it's written all over the pages of the Bible. Really, when you, when you take into account that all these, like you could call it like mini-series stories, little mini-episodes. You know, when I was a kid... And I don't know, when I was a kid, I don't think we, I don't know if HBO existed. Maybe it did. Um, there was some cable TV, I guess. I didn't grow up with cable TV. You know, I had like four channels on a little black and white box in the living room. And I remember, I, you know, I loved Westerns. And I, I would look forward to the Lonesome Dove series when it would come around about every year. And it was a miniseries. And you, know, you couldn't do really record. I mean, you could record on a VHS tape, but that's, you know. So you look forward to it, like, Monday night, this is going to be on, and you're, like, jacked up to sit down and watch this, and, like, you don't miss it, because if you do, you don't get to rewind, and wait till the next Monday to watch episode number two. I was just excited to watch that. It, 
And I think when the Bible um, becomes real to us, when we begin to realize, hey, there's, there's, it's, it's more than just this collection of stories and wise sayings. It's more than just a go-to book telling me how to live my life better. There's more to it than that. There's actually a story that's unfolding. I think what happens inside of us is we start to get a little bit more excited about reading it, right? Especially when you begin to see how much of what's happening there in the Bible in those times really do connect with where we're at right now as human beings living in a broken world. But if you take all these stories, all those miniseries stories, put them all together, um, man, you find out that there's this, this, this grand overarching story. It's filled with pain and suffering, the trials living in this broken world. So what's the, what's the hardest thing? What is the hardest thing that you've walked through recently? What's the hardest trial that you have faced in this most recent season? Because if you take all these stories, right? Your story, my story, you take all the stories in the Bible, you put them all together, you mix them up in the pot, what you find within that large, grand, overarching story of the Bible, you find that they all come together in one place. There is a central story that will meet all these other stories, all of them come together in one place. And it's the most horrific, most humbling story of all time. That story is centered at the foot of the cross of Calvary. I say it's the most horrific and most humbling because when you study that story, you find that a perfect man named Jesus, God in the flesh, came and died in your place and my place. And so all of the suffering... All the trials, all the difficulty finds its center there. All the uncensored pain, all the uncensored suffering of the Bible, all the brokenness that we experience, all the, all the pain and suffering, trials, difficulties that we observe in this world, all of that finds its meaning and its redemption at the foot of a bloody cross. Because honestly, really, if you were to boil all this down to one thing, I would honestly answer the question this way. The greatest trial, the hardest difficulty that you and I face on an ongoing basis is this one single trial. It's living as sin-infected people in a sin-infected world. That's the greatest trial we face every day. And Peter... As he writes this letter to the churches, he understands all of this, right? Writes this letter to the churches that have been scattered, and they've been scattered under the trials of living as a persecuted people, right? As a persecuted people under the rule and the reign of a hostile government. That's what you see in the storyline. See, the Christians that Peter is writing to these Christians knew something of what we feel as well. They, they knew something of what we know. They, they knew what it's like to live under the rule and the reign of a hostile government, regardless of what side of the aisle you fall on. We feel the intense hostility in our country, right? These Christians knew what this was like, and it was far worse for them than it is for us. Uh, the Christians that Peter is writing to here, they knew what it felt like to live as the outcasts of society. They knew what it was like to endure the abuse of a culture that is bent on evil. 
They also knew what it felt like to live with the fear of falling away from God. Anybody ever live with that kind of fear in your life? You just wonder, man, am I going to commit that one unpardonable sin tomorrow? Even though it's a bad take on the, on the principle itself anyways, we won't get down into the weeds on it, but I mean, I, th- I think all of us feel that, I think, some days, right? Like, man, does God really save me? These Christians that Peter is writing to, man, they knew what it felt like to experience as well as to observe persecution happening because of someone's faith, because someone took a stand on what is right versus what is wrong. They knew what it felt like to endure the temptation of sin. And here's the thing, I think as, as I studied this and as I thought my way through it, um, like I thought, like even if we can comprehend just a little bit of everything that I've just said, like even if we can just comprehend just a smidgen of that, right? Namely these things. If you can just understand some of this, that really at the end of the day, we cannot escape the trial of this life in terms of being outcasts, in terms of enduring abuse, in terms of that fear of falling away or persecution or temptation. We can't escape those things. This is a fact of life. This is part of what it means to live in a broken world. But, but, but it's hard, though, I think, when you face those things, right? When you go, gosh, things are not as they should be. I wish life would change. It's hard to wrestle with that as you also wrestle with this, what feels like a competing factor that as God's elect, right, if you trusted in Jesus, as God's elect, as his chosen and beloved possessions, you know that a good God, a good Father loves you. As you wrestle with the tension between that, you're you're still going to experience the trial of this life. Nobody is immune to the pain and the suffering of living in this sin-infected world as sin-infected people. We live in that. And so I think in light of all of that, those, all those realizations and all those thoughts and all that trajectory of the trials and the difficulties of this life, I think there's kind of a central thought that Peter wants his listeners, his readers, to know. Here's what I think he wants them to know. He wants them to know that the trials of this life produce a kind of grief that tests your faith and reveals your focus. Think about that. The trials of this life produce a kind of grief that tests your faith and reveal your focus. Let me ask you, where has your focus been lately? What have you been focused on? What what has caught the attention of your eyesight, your spiritual eyes? What have you been focused on? What have you been placing your trust in? Right? What, what, what kind of grief have you been wrestling with? Trying to cover up, trying to run away from, trying to pretend like it ain't there, so on and so forth. Because here's the thing. I think Peter wants us to know simply that the trials of this life are meant to produce a kind of grief that will test our faith and reveal our focus. Think about grief, number one. Think about grief for a minute. Grief is a powerful little emotion, isn't it? You think about what you have grieved about deeply in your life. And I'm not just talking, I'm not just talking like, man, I shed a tear because I watched that Hallmark movie over Christmas, right? I'm talking about the deep kind of grief that tears you up inside. 
Grief is a powerful emotion. Oftentimes, we typically feel grief when uh, we lose something that we treasured or when something that we were looking forward to um, doesn't come to fruition, right? Again, I'm not talking about the kind of grief that we feel um, just simply when a loved one dies, as painful as that is, right? That's a painful grief. Um, Not the kind of grief that you might feel when your political party doesn't win or doesn't do what it should do. It's not that kind of a grief that I'm talking about either, although there's grief in that. Not talking about the kind of grief that you feel just simply when your best friend betrays you. But that's, that's still grief, right? Not talking about the kind of grief that you feel when your marriage falls apart or when your kid rebels. Although those are all categories of grief. That's not the kind of grief I'm talking about. Listen close. Here's the kind of grief I'm trying to get at. The grief I'm trying to get at is the kind of grief that sets in when your loss, your disappointment, the failure that you just walked through, whatever bombshell just went off, whatever trial or difficulty you just faced, I'm talking about the kind of grief that when that happens, you are reminded that you are absolutely helpless, you're absolutely powerless, and you're absolutely vulnerable. That's the depth of grief that I'm trying to get after. Because I think that's the kind of grief that, that Peter's trying to get after. This is the kind of grief that you feel when you uh, realize that you are completely exposed. You're not hidden anymore. You you are without any kind of earthly protection or position or power to change your circumstances. You can't fake it anymore. Your title doesn't matter. Your job success doesn't matter. Your marital success doesn't matter anymore. At the end of the day, what you realize in this moment is I am completely powerless. My position doesn't do jack squat for me. And I'm completely vulnerable. I feel helpless and powerless. That's the kind of grief that I'm talking about. Now, all those things that I listed previously, somebody dying, marriage falling apart, yada, yada, all those things work in a way under the sovereign hand of God to get us there. Oftentimes, it's too painful for us to go to, to deal with. And I think God, in his sovereignty, through Peter, wants to deal with that kind of grief in our lives this morning. Because it's it's within this kind of grief, when you do the study on this text, it's within this kind of grief that Peter says, in this you rejoice. Wow. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, what? Grieved by various trials. You do a cross-reference check on the word grieved. and You do that all throughout the Bible here and you'll find the essence of what I'm trying to get after. This kind of grief This is the kind of grief that is not without hope. It's not without hope because this kind of grief, it's rooted in the promise of complete restoration in heaven. It's the kind of grief that knows that the trials of this life are actually divinely designed, caused 
by, by a God, a Father who loves us enough to say, this is the kind of grief that you need because it'll actually make you thirsty for heaven. You follow that? Like there's nothing else that would cause you to be thirsty for heaven except this kind of suffering, this kind of grief, necessary for this season of your life. So the trials of this life produce a kind of grief, a kind of grief that tests your faith, reveals your focus. So what are you focused on? What have you been trusting in? What is the kind of grief that God has allowed to come into your life that you've been trying to cover up, ignore, or look elsewhere to get placated and medicated? The trials of this life do test our faith, don't they? You know what that's like when you walk through a trial and you just feel like, I think I barely made it through that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm pretty sure, like, I came through that one, like, with like, the skin of my teeth. Like, I feel the flames of hell on my backside. Pretty sure. I feel like I'm scorched a little bit, right? So here's the thing. When it comes to faith, our faith is only going to be as stable and as genuine as the object in which it's placed. Right? Like, your faith doesn't matter if the object in which it's placed is crap. Right? Like, I can have all the belief in the world. Two sides of faith is believe and trust. I can have all the belief in the world that a chair is going to hold my weight. I can exert trust in that chair by actually taking a seat on it. I can muster up all the trust I have, all the belief I have, but, but if that chair does not meet or exceed my belief and my trust, then the reality is that the object of my faith is weak. And therefore, what does that say about my faith? Well, my faith is pointless, right? My faith is useless at that point. See, the trials of this life have a real interesting way of testing the genuineness of what the object of my faith is. This is why Peter says that trials happen, looking at verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be what? May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter is saying here is that if my faith is actually in Christ Jesus, then this is what's going to happen when trials and temptation and hardship come into my life, when, when, when the wind and the waves of this life rock the boat of my life, what's going to happen? I will remain secure in my obedience to Jesus as I live for his glory, right? I'll ask questions like, hey, God, does this honor you? It doesn't, so I'm not going to walk that way. I'm going to live for his glory while praising him, honoring him, and all that I think, say, and do, right? Simply put, trials are here for a reason. Difficulty is brought into our lives for a reason, by the sovereign hand of God. And in this case, these trials and difficulties are are simply the proving ground of our faith. 
And the proving ground of our faith, those trials, what are they designed to do in those moments when it comes to our faith? It proves our faith, but I also believe that those trials and difficulties actually act like little jackhammers on our lives, right? And what they do is they jackhammer away some of the extracts of this world that we've kind of clung ourselves to. We've attached to these things of the world, whether it be political systems, relationships, possessions, anything that we kind of attach ourselves to for our, our sustenance. These trials have a tendency to kind of jackhammer those things away, those extracts of the world. And what, what do they do? They make us fit for heaven. They form us. They shape us. You remember what, what God says in Romans, right? What Paul says, God says through Paul in Romans. Like all things are meant for the good of those who are called by my name, for my own glory. Meant to glorify God, meant to shape and mold you and I. So this is why I keep saying that the trials of this life produce a kind of grief that actually tests our faith, shapes it and molds it, much like somebody would grab a hold of some of that gold, some of that silver, heat it up really, 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 really bad, right? And in the midst of that, it would, it would, it would kind of take off the things that don't belong there. It would turn that silver, that gold, into a really nice piece of jewelry. That's what God's doing through trials and difficulties in your life. He's making sure that your faith is genuine. He's testing it, shaping it, and molding it. Trials of this life produce a kind of grief that not only tests your faith, but also reveal your focus. What have you been focused on? What you been looking at? What have your eyes been looking at? What's the eyesight of your heart been focused on, caught up with, controlled by? What you been placing your trust in? What kind of grief is there inside of you that God has allowed that you've been running from? So I said something this last week um, when we worked through the verses from last week. I said something about the power of what can be seen versus the power of the unseen. You might remember that. Things that you can see are very powerful versus things that you cannot see. Agreed? The reality uh, for all of us um, sitting here today is that we live in a world that is full of powerful visuals. You know what I mean? Powerful, powerful visuals. Not every day we see images, right? Coming across our news feeds, social media feeds, news channels, newspapers, whatever it is you're looking at, it's visuals. We see images every day that, that entice us, and they entice certain things inside of us, tempt us. It's kind of like smell. You know, eyesight is just as powerful as smell. And I always tell you guys, whenever I smell a really good steak, whew, that's enticing. If I smell some good Italian food, some good old lasagna, some meatballs and some sausage, mm, smell some good Mexican food, um, it's enticing. You go, oh, I'm hungry. Visuals are the same way. Every day we are enticed by images, and those images entice certain things inside of us. They, they entice things like fear, right? Have you seen an image lately that, is, that has enticed you to be afraid of something? <clears throat> seen an image lately that has enticed you to lust after something or someone? 
See an image lately that it entices you towards anger? You see that image, you just get angry right away, and even sometimes you're like, well, it's just righteous anger. I can be angry. We, I mean, you don't have to be a Christian for longer than like 30 seconds to go, righteous anger is okay, unrighteous anger is not okay, so therefore every angry feeling I have is righteous anger. Because God's word says so. Show me. Show me. Yeah, angry, you got sadness, got all sorts of other emotional responders that images entice, right? It awakens those things. And here's the problem. The problem is that we have been conditioned to respond to those images, those enticements in a very sinful way. And what we need is we need spiritual insight. We need spiritual eyesight. We need a kind of a supernatural, you know, Holy Spirit-enabled eyesight that helps us to see into the unseen, right? We need spiritual eyesight that helps us to see into the unseen. Why? So that we can catch a vision of the invisible end game. If you're just living for what's right in front of you and in front of your nose, <coughs> you ain't living for nothing because what's right in front of your nose is going to be nothing someday, right? And in the story of God's Word, we need to be looking towards an unseen end game so that we can live faithfully in the here and now as we endure the trials of this life. This is why Peter wraps up everything he said here in the last two verses, verses 8 and 9. He says that though you have not seen him, Jesus, anybody here ever seen him? Unless you've had a, like an out-of-body experience, most of us have been conditioned to see Jesus, a little blue-eyed, blonde-haired dude who wouldn't do anything wrong or say anything harsh. Because we haven't read Revelation, that, that picture of him coming out with a, the lightning bolts and the sword and the tattoo and the clothes drenched in blood because he's ready for war. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Peter says. Though you do not see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy. I love that, that phrase. Check that. Rejoice with joy. How else do you rejoice? Rejoice with joy? Really, Peter? Like, do you need to go to English class? Oh, he didn't speak English. <laughs> rejoice with joy. I mean, it, it's a picture of, of not just, like, rejoicing because I'm compelled to do so by some rule. It's a picture of, of rejoicing that is filled with joy. It, it, in fact, it, it's, it's, it's almost um, indescribable. In fact, I think he, he says that, right? You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome. This is forward thinking. The outcome of your faith who God wants you to be, and where you're headed fit for heaven. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I mean, to summarize, here's the thing. Uh, the trials of this life reveal whether or not you are focused on the invisible or the visible. When you get into a trial, just start checking yourself. Like, hey, what am I looking at? What am I looking at? What am I focused on? What is it that is consuming the thoughts of my mind and the words of my mouth? Do that with people around you. Your, your friends, 
cover each other's backs and be like, hey, bro, or hey, sis, I think, I think you might be caught up in something that's catching your attention that's not a picture of heaven. Like, the only reason that followers of Jesus throughout history have refused to take themselves out of harm's way is because Christians at some point begin to understand that if they attempt to escape from suffering, then God's work in them is going to be left incomplete. God uses suffering, trials, in powerful ways in our lives. We're human. We want to try to escape that. In my opinion, and I'm not, I'm not making a bold statement, in my opinion, like Nelson and I talk about this all the time, in my opinion, this is why rapture theology is so tantalizing. It's escape. Is it wrong? No, I'm not saying that. Don't, don't mischaracterize me. I do have a position that I land on. But I think that's why that becomes so tantalizing. God's going to take us up out of that. Look at the story of Scripture. Like, you do find rescue in there. But I tell you, the kind of suffering that people go through in the Bible is far worse than most of us have experienced, right? In terms of being persecuted for our faith. This is why Christians throughout history have not necessarily tried to escape from suffering because I, I think there's a mature kind of a thinking that says, you know what, this suffering, it's doing something in me, shaping me, it's molding me into the image of Christ. Nothing gets shaped and molded. Character doesn't get shaped and molded in the easy, easy times, but by seeking comfort. Salvation's future inheritance, it's only going to be gained. When you think about the inheritance of salvation, what is that? Like, the inheritance of salvation is, is a perfect presence with God. It's not just heaven up on the clouds, escaping all the nastiness of earth. It's a new heavens and a new earth. Perfect restoration in the presence of God. All things have been made new. That future inheritance will only be gained through seasons. This current season that you and I are living in of present suffering. See, a believer who focuses on Jesus, a believer who focuses on Jesus is going to endure the trials of this life. Why? Because they love Jesus. Because they look to the cross and they say, you know what, the greatest picture of suffering that ever happened is right there at the cross. Jesus didn't try to escape that. For the joy, oh, for the joy that was in him, he pursued the cross and went to it. He did ask God, his father in the garden, and if it would be your will, please take this cup from me. This is more than I can endure. But if it's your will, let your will be done trusting in the Spirit to give them the strength to do what His calling was, right? Christians endure the trials of this life because they love Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They rejoice joyfully in Jesus and they live to glorify Jesus as they await the final salvation of their souls at the gateway of heaven. So this is why I've been saying all throughout this sermon that the trials of this life produce a kind of grief that winds up testing your faith and revealing your focus. <coughs> so what you've been looking at? What you've been focused on? Right in front of you, the visible thing that you've been chasing after. What you've been focused on? What have you been trusting in? That thing right in front of you, probably. Whatever that is. <clears throat> what is the grief, the kind of grief that caused you to get to where you're at? Finally, like, how does God want to see that change in you? 
and just ask him, hey, would you change me? Would you change my eyesight? Would you help me to trust in you? Would you help me to walk through that grief in a way that honors you? If those are three very practical ways you can apply this message when you walk out the door without you giving yourself a pat on the back, like, hey, yo, I'm super Christian now. I got something I can do to put my check mark on the list. You can still walk out the door and just ask God, help me. I'm going to conclude this way. Remind you of these things. Um, like, it is hard, I think, once again, to wrestle with the fact that as God's elect, if you've trusted in Jesus, it's hard to wrestle with the fact that, that as his children, as his beloved possessions, we're still going to experience the trials of this life, right? Remember this. Nobody who's ever lived is immune to the pain and suffering of living as sin-infected people in a sin-infected world, right? The verses that we've studied today, verses 6 through 9, if you kind of think of those in a clump, verses 6 through 9 over here, um, they, all they do is they lend this really incredible balance um, to verses 3 through 5. They lend this really incredible balance to the Christian's delightful anticipation of the heaven that you see in verses 3 through 5. Think of this. Uh, let me read it for you real fast. I think Steph should be coming forward to jump on the piano here shortly because I'm going to wrap it up quick. <clears throat> I did verses 3 through 5 last week. This week was 6 through 9. Now listen to the whole thing in context, being in verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That's a picture of heaven. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, you, by God's power, being guarded through your faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now verse 6, what we just read today. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Is that true of you? Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Is that true of you? And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Throughout all this, what you learn is you learn that your inheritance in heaven is not going to be won without enduring a myriad of difficulties this side of heaven. Not going to win that inheritance without walking through difficulty here. <clears throat> so what's the hardest thing you've walked through recently? What's the biggest trial you face in your life? Where have you felt like the deepest amount of grief lately? What you've been trusting in? What you've been looking at, focused on? Because all the trials of this life are meant to do is just simply make you ready for heaven, right? We, we can't escape the trials of this life, the trials of being outcast, the trials of enduring abuse, the, the trials of loss of friendships, the, the, the trial of the fear of failing or falling away, or the persecution, the temptation. But here is the one thing I'll leave you with. I'll leave you with it every week. 
It's at the foot of the bloody cross, and it's in the doorway of the empty tomb, and it's in light of the hope and the promise of eternity in heaven. It's in that place that you are able to live your life full of joy in this present moment, inexpressible joy, knowing this, that the trials of this life produce a kind of grief that tests your faith and reveals your focus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you uh, so much for the privilege to preach your word and the opportunity we had to hear from your word and to pray. God, in these closing moments that you would lead us to the foot of that bloody cross and remind us of the power of the empty tomb and, and give us the hope of heaven. Um, remind us that the trials that you have allowed into our lives really do produce a, a kind of grief that is uh, purposed by you to test our faith, strengthen our faith, bolster our faith, even spark and begin our faith and help us to focus more on you. So God, pray that you would lead us there as we close in worship. Trust you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.